invite you to open your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, as we continue our series in um, the book of Revelation, a view behind the veil. As you're doing that, I want to invite you uh, to return this evening as we're um, just starting a wonderful study of the book of Jonah. It's a message that is really critical for us as a church to hear the book of Jonah um, as God calls us to mission. And I just want to encourage you. I read, I, I saw a, a great little um, clip by Alistair Begg where he quotes Sinclair Ferguson saying that the, uh, the mark of a church that hungers for the word of God will be their attendance at an evening worship service. Um, I think that's, um, that's, a, good, that's a good statement. Uh, the, heart, the, the evidence of our hunger for the word of God. Uh, do we give ourselves gladly to it? And so I want to invite you to join us for the worship and the word uh, this evening. Revelation chapter 2, uh, we are reading uh, Jesus Christ speaking and addressing uh, individual churches. And in each of these individual letters, we're seeing a message that Jesus has for us today. This letter is addressed to us as much as it is addressed to the church in Pergamum. And so let's give our attention to our Lord as he speaks, beginning at verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality." So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord Jesus, we profess that these words come directly from your mouth and come directly to us as your church, your people. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit today would keep us from the great sin of despising the word of God, that we would, Lord, give you our attention and our heart that we would, Lord, we ask now that you would mold our lives according to your will, according to your word, according to your person, that we might be blessed and, and, and uh, sanctified and you, our Lord and Savior, would be glorified. So, uh, Lord, in this, in this moment now, we look to you and, your, and trust your presence and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Holding Fast in the Shadow of Satan's Throne. Our text this morning calls us to uh, consider where we live and how to be faithful as the church of Jesus Christ in this time and in this place. Uh, 
Juan, uh, Juan Sanchez, uh, one of the commentators I'm reading, is, says this. He says, we're living in a brave new world of changing cultural values. And if you do not conform, you will be punished. Uh, in this brave new world, it is a hate crime to affirm publicly that God ordained marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. In this brave new world, it is anti-woman to believe the baby inside a mother's womb is a person and entitled to protection. In this brave new world, it is intolerant to hold that uh, gender identity is defined by the God who created us, male and female. And to protect our brave new world, Western governments enact laws that will ensure we all bow down before the culture's postmodern idols. I think we're seeing that already happen in, in uh, the West, in Europe, in Canada, and increasingly here in the United States. Uh, people are losing their job because they uh, do not bow down to the um, culture's postmodern idols. Uh, a teacher in New Jersey was suspended for giving a student a Bible. A football coach in Washington was placed on leave for saying a prayer with his, uh, with his players. Uh, the fire chief in Atlanta was fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. A marine officer was court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. Mary Eberstadt, uh, the author of It's Dangerous to Believe, uh, writes that in America, Christians are the only remaining minority that can be mocked and denigrated broadly, unilaterally, and with impunity. And that is not uh, asking for pity, that's simply explaining what's happening in our country. Uh, our brave new world is increasingly looking like the pagan old world that we read about here in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, so our text is prescient and relevant, it's a letter from Jesus, and it's for us. Pergamum was a significant city, about 150,000 people. Uh, it was known as the capital city of the Asian province. And so if, uh, if we're looking at the churches of Asia Minor, you could say that Ephesus was the New York of Asia, the social and economic hub. But Pergamum was Washington, D.C. It's the political hub. It's, it's where the power resides. And the people of the citizens of Pergamum are, are very proud of this fact. They had erected a, a temple to the, quote, divine Caesar Augustus and the goddess Roma. And so emperor worship is firmly entrenched and, uh, and strongly supported in the city of Pergamum. Uh, the presence and power of Rome is everywhere. Uh, here were the courts, the judges, the prisons, and the places of punishment, including the um, first known school, uh, not, uh, the first known arena built for the gladiator games. Pergamum had um, the most famous gladiator school where you would be trained in the, uh, the art of killing. And, and this was often then, as you know, places where Christians were brought to fight, quote unquote, with wild beasts, though they would usually be giving uh, no weapon at all or something that would just be mockery. And then the wild beasts turned loose on them. Um, Jesus mentions one such person who has suffered there, Antipas, who was killed among you. Uh, persecution is a reality for the believers in Pergamum. But perhaps the greatest threat to their faith, their faith was not the hard persecution that they faced from Roman uh, law, but the soft persecution of the pervasive pagan society. Uh, Pergamum was a thoroughly pagan city. There's abundance of 
pagan temples there. Uh, Dionysus, the god of wine, fertility, and ritual madness. Athena, goddess of, of the craftsmen. Asclepius, the god of healing. And then uh, on, on, the city, on, on a hill above the city, there's a huge altar to Zeus at the city's highest point. And, um, and so the, the city is just saturated with paganism. About 15 years ago, Joanne and I had the privilege of, of going and touring the cities of Asia Minor. And we were in Pergamum and just struck by how, um, just by the depravity of pagan worship. For instance, the uh, Dionysus festivals were profoundly debauched affairs with rampant drunkenness and sexual liberation. Uh, these festivals would also involve eating raw meat, and we were in a little room where this would take place, where it's a square room, there's a, 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 a table around, a, a shelf around, and, and raw meat from sacred bulls would be placed there, and you would you'd go in that room, and you would eat that raw meat with the blood dripping down your chin. Uh, it was a way of getting the God inside you. And then, of course, uh, getting drunk, the wine being the gift of Dionysus, was a way of getting the spirit inside you. Sexual liberation was participating in Dionysus uh, as the god of fertility. And so it was incredibly debauched. Notice Jesus speaks to both this eating uh, of food sacrificed to idols and the sexual immorality in verse 14. He knows where they live. Now you might think that the easy solution for the believers in Pergamum would be just avoid the temples, right? Don't go there. But it's, it's not that easy. If you, um, if you remember from your history classes, there is a very close relationship in those days between the, uh, the paganism, the idolatry, and commerce. Uh, commerce was ruled by various guilds. If you were a baker, you needed to belong to the baker's guild in order to do business in the city. If you're a construction worker, the same thing. doesn't matter what you do. Your activity, economic activity in the community is uh, in the context of guild membership. Well, guilds all had patron gods or goddesses. And, part, and to be a member of the guild then required you to participate in some form of worship or um, acknowledging the god or the goddess. And so there would, be, there would be something that you were required to do, some token of, uh, of, of homage or worship to this pagan god. Well, this is something that Christians simply could not do. Consequently, they lose their license to participate in the economic activity of the society, of the city, and consequently cannot provide for themselves. They lose their job. They lose their career. They lose their home. The, the economic reality is, uh, of being a Christian is very real, very dire. And so... Um, this failure to participate because of your faith in Christ has immediate consequences. You're going to be ostracized, you're going to be penalized, um, and possibly even to death. That's the church that Jesus is addressing, and he, and he speaks to them with um, a letter of encouragement and gentle correction. And so let's first look at uh, a reminder, <laughs> as Jesus reminds them, who he is and where they live. First, a reminder of who he is. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, for a word of encouragement, that might not sound very encouraging. It sounds maybe a little, a little harsh. But we need to remember that this is actually the real Jesus. If you have your Bible, you can just turn back to chapter 1, 
verse 16, where Jesus reveals himself. John says, I saw him, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In other words, the Jesus who's speaking uh, in, in chapter 2 is just the real Jesus, the actual Jesus, not a sentimentalized, uh, sort of softened Jesus. Um, and, and Jesus is encouraging them because, you see, the sword is, uh, is one of the, the famous signs of uh, symbols of Rome. Roman power, Roman authority, uh, the, the ability that Rome had to take life. Rome uh, proudly claimed this for themselves, and, and actually God has given, as Paul says in Romans 13, he's given governments the authority to, to wield the sword. But this sword is being used by Rome to kill Christians. And Jesus now reminds them there's a greater sword than Rome. Rome has no authority except the authority given to it by King Jesus. Jesus has the ultimate sword. And he wields that sword, uh, not in his hand, but by his mouth. In other words, uh, Jesus reigns over his world by his word. It is truth that is his mighty weapon. And Jesus speaks, and as Jesus speaks, his will is accomplished. He's just reminding these believers of what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian, that they are not ultimately under the authority of human governments. What can man do to me except by the will of my sovereign God? But also reminding them that in a world of unbelievable intellectual and religious chaos and confusion, in in the midst of all this spiritual darkness, there is a light of truth And we need to remember that as the the darkness sort of descends over our own country, over our land. And there's unbelievable chaos, incredible confusion, even down to the idea of gender. Well, we don't have to be confused. Jesus Christ has actually spoken in his word. There is such a thing as truth, the things that come from the mouth of Jesus. And we can stand in that truth. And Jesus will use his truth to accomplish his purposes. And one day will judge the world by his truth. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Jesus reminds them who he is, and then he reminds them where they live. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Uh, With the ever-present oppressive power of Rome and the rampant paganism and the resulting immorality, it's not hard to see why Jesus would refer to Pergamum as the city where Satan lives. But it would almost certainly be a shock to the believers in Pergamum to hear it said. When the Christians in Pergamum, they're just like us, right? When, when they looked at their city, they saw home, familiar places, familiar faces, They just saw the world as they knew it, living as the world of that day lived. It's just like if you you go to downtown Grand Rapids or New York or L.A. You just see the world just doing what the world does. But you see, in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is giving us a view behind the veil. He's showing us things as they really are. So when the citizens of Asia saw Pergamum, They saw a bustling, politically important city. They saw just normal people living their lives. What Jesus saw was demonic housing. He mentions this twice to make the point. 
He wants them to realize that they are living in the middle of a dynamic spiritual battleground. They're on the front line, literally, right? The devil lives in your city, lives in Pergamum. They live in the shadow of Satan's throne. That's an important reminder to us, uh, the church, today. We look at our country, and we see home. But it's good for us to ask, what does Jesus see? Maybe Jesus sees the number one provider, consumer, and exporter of pornographic materials in the whole world. Americans watch more pornography than any other nation, and it's not really close. 60% of all pornography in the world is produced and posted in the United States, and we make up 4.7% of the world's population. Maybe Jesus sees a murderous nation. Uh, Due to its one-child policy, China leads the way in uh, the abortion holocaust. Uh, The United States is second, which means that on the list of those who freely choose to take the life of their unborn child, America is number one. Maybe Jesus sees gross consumerism and materialism. Which country do you suppose leads the way? Spending the most money on consumer products and services. We do. Maybe Jesus sees a nation that exports devastating heresy, like the emergent faith movement and the health wealth teaching that is is ripping through and and destroying Christian communities uh, all around the world. I'm not saying we need to hate our country. What I'm suggesting is that we try to see what Jesus sees. Muslims all over the world call America the home of Satan, at least in part because they see the demoralizing, soul-decaying, family-destroying products and ideas which America exports all around the world. Friends, we like to think of ourselves as a light on a hill. But what does Jesus see? Couldn't couldn't it be said that Satan's throne is in our country? Maybe it's, it's time we stop thinking of America simply as the home of the brave and start seeing it as the front line of spiritual battle. Maybe we're not as safe as we thought we were. Jesus gives a recommendation then, a commendation to his people. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Jesus, friends, he loves to see his church holding fast. He loves faithfulness. This is his bride. He has pledged his troth to his bride, his loyalty and faithfulness and fidelity, and and he delights when the church does the same and holds fast to him even in the face of death. What does it mean to hold fast to Christ? Well, Jesus links it to, did not deny my faith. In other words, did not deny the the apostolic teaching concerning the the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Did not deny the truth about uh, the gospel. Did not undermine it or change it in any way. Um, And we're willing, you see, then to die with the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And they professed it not just with their lip, but with their life. Not only in principle, but in practice. And Jesus praises them for it, commends them for it. In the face of hard persecution, they were standing fast, holding to Christ. It's the soft persecution they were struggling with. And that's why we have the rebuke in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says to these, this dear church whom he, he dearly loves, he says, I have something against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so while Jesus praises the church for the standing fast in the midst of overt persecution and, and, and physical threats, he rebukes them for giving ground to the pervasive influence of the pagan world in which they lived. And he references this by using a story from the Old Testament. Um, the story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22 and following. It's a fascinating story. Uh, Israel is making its way to the land of Canaan and, and Balak, the king of Moab, is desperate to stop them. And so he hires uh, sort of a, a, this, this guy named Balaam, a prophet of sorts. He hires him to come and speak a curse against Israel. Boys and girls, you remember the story of Balaam's donkey? Where Balaam is on his way and, and the donkey sees an angel of the Lord standing there and stops and Balaam rebukes the donkey? This is that guy. Well, the, the Lord lets him go, but the Lord says, I'm constraining you to only speak a blessing, not a curse. So Balak says, okay, you speak the curse, and I'll pay you well. And so Balaam gets up and speaks a blessing. And Balak's so upset. But let's try it again. So they try it again. Same thing happens. Try it again. Same thing happens. And so Balaam doesn't get paid. But Balaam comes up with another plan. Since God won't allow Balaam to curse the people, he says, how can I curse those whom God has blessed? Um, Balaam suggests to King Balak, tell you what, why don't you seduce them? Send your beautiful Moabite women down and to mingle in the camp and to lead the Israeli men into sexual sin and then invite them to the pagan festivals and so that's exactly what Balak does. And in so doing, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 25. The Lord's anger is turned against Israel. The Lord kills 24,000 Israelites. Um, the, the, the sin of seduction or the power of seduction accomplishes vastly more than Balak himself could have ever accomplished militarily. Well, what does that have to do with Pergamum? Well, they're facing, Jesus says, the exact same temptation. They're living in a, in a culture where the devil lives and the devil knows what he's doing. And so the, the, the devil, if, if he cannot defeat the church uh, um, through overt persecution, they tried it with Antipas. Antipas just went to his grave uh, holding fast to Christ and people were encouraged. So, but the devil knows there's another way, through, through seduction, and so um, the church is being seduced into doing exactly what happened in the old days, participating in the pagan festivals and engaging in sexual immorality. Now notice, not everyone in the church is doing this. Jesus doesn't say that. He rebukes them for allowing some to do it. You have some who are engaged in this. In other words, Jesus is rebuking the church in Pergamum 
for failing to practice church discipline. They haven't dealt with the sum who are engaging in these activities contrary to the will of Christ. They're allowing what Jesus doesn't allow. It's fascinating to me how easily churches in mass are simply doing away with church discipline. We don't do that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from pastors. We don't do that. Well, Jesus does. And he has a rebuke for churches that don't do that. In fact, he'll tell them, if you don't repent, I will exercise my discipline. It's the same with the false teachers. You have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So these are, we're not quite sure, but it appears in the context that these were teachers who were uh, looking for theological justification for participation in the pagan culture. Maybe this would be an early form of Gnosticism, which teaches that you're, uh, this body-soul dualism, the body is material, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body, you can participate in all those things, but God is really concerned about your heart. Maybe that's what's going on. Either, either way, they're looking for theological justifications for participation in the idolatry, and Jesus hates it. He says he hates it in chapter 2, verse 6, when he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. Now notice again, he doesn't rebuke the false teachers. He doesn't rebuke the Nicolaitans. There will always be false teachers. He rebukes the church for allowing the false teachers. You have some who, who uh, hold to this, this teaching. Deal with it. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You got to deal with it. He said, we, got, we need to pay attention here. The, the temptation to accommodate to the pressure of culture and to curb the hard edges of Christ's teaching, to suddenly change the message of the gospel to something that's more culturally palatable, that is constantly a temptation for the church. And it is always devastating to the church. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, J. Philip Arthur notes this, that this process of, of pressure and accommodation, this process still goes on. He says, any British town of modest size will contain a number of former church buildings that now are used for other purposes. I can think of one in my hometown that now houses a Sikh temple. A hundred years ago, these places were often the homes of robust evangelical witness. Little by little, congregations were introduced to a Christ shorn of his miracles and a gospel of good behavior and social concern. People will continue to attend a church when a life-changing encounter with Christ is a real possibility. But if all that is on offer is platitudes about helping the disadvantaged, it is hardly surprising when churches empty. You can go to the Red Cross and do that. So why did the church in England allow this to happen? This devastating liberalism that came into the church. Well, no, nobody, it was with good intentions. It, it was trying to find a way for the church to, to, to be a little maybe more at home in, in, a, in a world where the pressure was, was in, 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 in increasing. Um, and, and, and they've... The, 
people found that a religion, you see, of good behavior and social concern is more culturally acceptable than a religion about confessing your sin and bowing to the sovereign lordship of King Jesus even unto death. Well, the church in Pergamon needs to hear this admonition that Jesus gives a command, repent with a warning. If you don't, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. I, I just hope we sense that Jesus is serious about this. This is the loving Lord who went to the cross. And it's precisely because he loves his church that he, he just will not abide accommodation with the enemy, with the world and the flesh and the devil. So he says, repent, stop, turn, change your mind. But you could say, yeah, but Lord, don't you understand? If we repent of these things, people will lose their jobs. Your people, Jesus, will go without homes and food. Do you not understand the consequences, the real consequences? If we take a stand on the matters of the day, on sexual ethics, do you not realize people will lose their jobs? Well, Jesus says, yes, um, I do know. He knows what he's asking, friends. He's no, he knows what he's asking. But he's serious, you see, about life and health and peace for his church. And, and he's serious about holiness. Friendship with the world is always enmity with Jesus. He, he's, he's hungry. Christ is so passionate about the health and vibrant life of his bride, the purity of his bride. And he's willing, to, he's willing to ask us to do the hard thing, not, not, not apologetically, but he knows that exactly as we stand in the world, then we're accomplishing the mission, and we're glorifying him, and we're being purified and prepared for what is eternal. This is not bad news to Jesus. This is, this is good news for us and, and for our Lord. It's a word that we have to hear. Whatever else could be said about the church in America, seriousness is probably not one of them. The societal pressure, friends, is not going to change. It's not going to go away. Unless the Lord causes a vast revival and pray that he does. If he does not, we are in for increasing societal pressure. And we're going to have to rediscover and recommit ourselves to what used to be called the antithesis. The idea that there is a line of demarcation that runs between the people of God and the people of this world. There's two different kingdoms run by two different principles to two different ends. And they're not friends. We're going to have to realize that choices will need to be made if we are going to be serious, you see, about how we live in this world for the glory of Christ. We're going to have to be thinking about our participation in the American pop culture. We're going to have to think about what we watch on our televisions. There are, there are, there's more rot available now than, than ever before. And you, in the privacy of your home, you can watch that R-rated movie. You can watch the, the, the MA-rated uh, television program. You can do that in the privacy of your home. You just can't do that without Jesus knowing and seeing. And you can't do that 
in general, right, there might be the, the, the wild exception that proves the rule. You cannot do that, friends, as you're pursuing godliness. I, I, <clears throat> what do we think we're actually doing when we're just entertaining ourselves and getting very comfortable with nudity, sexual immorality, because it's funny, because it makes a good point, it's a gripping story? Well, of course it is. The devil's not stupid. And I'm not saying this as, as someone who isn't tempted and who hasn't sinned. Right? I got the same Netflix you get. Are we going to make the choice? That's the, that's the question. Are we going to draw lines in the sand? That's what Christ is talking to us about. We're going to have to start having conversations in our homes and families about entertainment and about social media. They are not value-free activities. If you're a Christian parent, you're going to need to be proactive and discerning and diligent when it comes to your children and smartphones. These are not days, friends, for simply hoping for the best. We live in the shadow of Satan's throne. I read recently a a Twitter feed from a, a priest who says this, Dear parents, Get Snapchat off your kids' phones. Now, don't ask. Just do it. Let them hate you. That will pass. Love your priest who hears their sins. I'm not saying that's the only option. But it might be. It might be. Can Christ ask us to do that? Give up Instagram and Snapchat because it's doing nothing for our spiritual benefit? And is ripe with temptation, not just for immorality, but for a host of other sins. And I'm confident that holding fast to Christ, friends, is going to require us at some point to to get serious about what we're doing with our kids and smartphones and social media. And I don't think we're there yet. We had a conference last fall and maybe 20, 30 people showed up. We're not there yet. I'm concerned about the passivity of parents when it comes to social media. We know it's not good for them. Studies show that time spent on social media, the more time spent on social media, the more likely a young person, especially a girl, is to identify as depressed or unhappy in life. It's a direct correlation. The people who design the games don't let their children use them because they know that they are designed for addiction. Could we just wake up? Could Jesus be talking to us about these sorts of things right where we live? We live in the shadow of friends of Satan's throne. And this world is not a friend to godliness. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? No, it's not. It's not. So we have to make choices. And we're we're going to be forced to do that by our culture. When we're faced with being accepted or being faithful, what what will it be? When we're we're faced with holding fast uh, to Christ and losing things or trying to accommodate, what's, what's it going to be? What are you willing to lose to hold fast to Christ? More importantly, 
How can we be strengthened in our faith so that holding fast to Christ is precious to us? It's more precious than our reputation, more precious than our career, more precious than our friends. Um, And the answer to that is found in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now that, uh, to us, just sounds like, okay, what in the world is hidden manna and white stones? Well, let me quickly, uh, again from Sanchez, in Jewish tradition, it is said that Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah the prophet, gathered the tabernacle, the altar of incense, and the ark containing a jar of manna and hid them on Mount Sinai to keep them safe from the invading Babylonians. Uh, The tradition held that these would be revealed and given to the people when the Messiah came. Hidden manna then points the church to the messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says if we hold fast to the faith, Yes, we will be left out of the world's festivals and celebrations, but rather than being, feeling excluded, we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast where we will dine at the king's table. See, that's, that's how we fight sin. It'll never work to fight sin simply with threats. The way that God fights sins is he gives us the, a greater affection. Yes, you can participate in the world's feasts, you can. It's all right there. But what you lose is the hidden manna. What you lose is the banquet feast of, of communion and fellowship with God forever and ever and ever. What do you want? What do we want? What feast is more appealing and precious? And if the Spirit is within you, you just have this sense of God, I want that feast. And I want to learn to hate the feasts of this world. I want, I want, to, I want to long for that, that day when I will dine with Jesus Christ in his presence. That's, that's the only feast I care about. That will change your life. What about the white stones? White stones had a variety of meaning in the first century Pergamum, uh, for instance, uh, it, was, it was a sign of acquittal. If a judge uh, judged that you were innocent, he would, give a, he would hold up a white stone. Uh, it was a sign of, 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 it was a pass of sorts, that if you were going to have a party and you invited your friends, you would give them a white stone, and they would show that white stone at the gate, and they would be allowed entrance into the festival. Uh, white stones were, were given when, in, in the gladiator games when a, when a combatant showed particular uh, honor and bravery and, uh, and won the favor of the crowd. The crowd would call for the overseeing official to, to, to hold up and give a white stone, which granted that fighter honorable discharge and freedom. He had conquered. And all of that goes into Jesus' promise. I'll give you a white stone. It's a sign of your acquittal before by the judge of heaven, that, that God has found you righteous and innocent in his sight, and no man can condemn. It's your pass into the eternal banquet feast, and no one can forbid you from entering. It is your honorable discharge from the battles of this life, and your token of freedom in Christ forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is saying to the citizens of Pergamum, it's, it's right here, come, hold fast, and I will give you a white stone. And the beautiful thing is, friends, it has your name on it. 
It has your name on it, your new name. In, the, in other words, God knows those who are his. And when God's sovereignly and saving grace brings people to himself, he gives them a new name. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. But that isn't just for the, the big shots, right, in, 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 the, in the faith of the church, the history of the church. That's for every individual, every Christian. God gives a name, a new name, and he writes it on that white stone. It belongs to you. It's yours. All through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it signifies, you see, that you've been made new. You have a new status. And, and, and you, you're now acquitted. And you are, you are you personally, your name. You are welcome to the banquet feast. You've overcome through Christ, through faith in him. And so the, the, the question is, is, is that the gospel that you believe in and profess? That in Jesus Christ you believe? God will acquit you, has acquitted you. Do you believe that in, in Christ, by faith in him, as you confess your sin, you're invited to the most glorious reality of the universe and of eternity? Do you believe that because of faith in Christ, what Jesus has done for you, and, and by giving you the gift of faith, that you, you are a child of God, you're the bride of, of the Lord? And you have then, friends, you can know there's a white stone with your name on it, given to you by God, and no one can take it away. And if that's true, then let's live like it's true. Let's live like it's true. I said a word to the parents. I want to just quickly wrap with a word to the children and to the teenagers. If this sermon causes conversations to happen in your home about cell phones and social media and what we're watching on TV, boys and girls and young people, you know this, you're members of this church too. And this Jesus is your Jesus too. And that calls you to do what pleases Jesus. Number one being, obey your parents. I don't want to hear about fights happening in Christian homes, Christian families, because mom and dad are trying to take seriously the command of Christ. And boys and girls and teenagers are re refusing it. But it doesn't really matter what I want to hear. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to hear we're all called to this, boys and girls, young people. We're all called to it. What are we, boys and girls and young people, what are we willing to give up for Christ? What are we willing to give away because we belong to him and we're not going to participate in the world? What are we convinced uh, is better to give away because Christ has promised us such great things? Friends, this is Christ's word for us today. We who live in the shadow of Satan's throne, Jesus calls us to hold fast. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're, we're, we're people, we're 21st century Americans. And we are comfortable, Lord Jesus, with the world. And we fear losing things because of our faith. And we're nervous about taking stances, about drawing lines, about holding fast, because the world is going to mock us and maybe punish us, and it's going to hurt. And the temptation to accommodate will be fierce. 
Lord Jesus, you know where we live and the temptations that are all around us and the weakness that we feel within us. And so we beg that you teach us to stand. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that standing isn't just holding to a set of principles or rules, but standing is holding fast to Jesus, holding fast to Christ, holding to his teaching, clinging to his truth, his word, and submitting ourselves then happily to his lordship. Jesus, I pray you would use this word this morning to purify us. That our life will change because we've heard a word from Jesus. And that will take courage because we lack courage. We'll take courage in who we are and what's promised to us. And we will battle for what is yet to come. Lord, I pray that we will love the world around us. The principle of this world is our enemy, but the people, Lord, of this world is the mission field. And I pray that we would be able to call our neighbors and unsaved family members to something better, not just a better way of life, but to a savior, a king, who can give life. And that we'd be unashamed to own his cause, that we would not blush to speak his name. And so, Lord, we thank you for your letter to us this morning. And ask that you would use it, Lord, to give us joy and courage and hope as we fight this fight of faith until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.